Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. And welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me is our classmate, Dante Centauri. Dante, hey, how are you? All right. Great to be on. Great to have you. So where are you and what are you up to these days? I am in Wapakoneta, Ohio which is in West Central Ohio, and it's the birthplace of Neil Armstrong. So what are you doing in Wapakoneta? Well, that's key. It's the birthplace of Neil Armstrong because I'm the executive director of the Armstrong Air and Space Museum. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, I know you've been in science education pretty much your whole career. Before we get that, I got some key questions I know people are dying to know. (laughs) Do you still have the blue wig? Oh, I sure do. Oh, all right. All right. And do you still have that funky outfit that you used to wear in the Yale Precision Marching Band? Oh, yeah. That's in my little, you know, whatever you want to call it, your memory box or stuff that I just really can't throw out no matter how many times we've moved. Now, one last question and we'll get into like seriously what you've been doing. Do you still play the nose flute? <laughs> no, it's been a while that I probably could still hack it. The funny thing is that the flute was the first instrument my daughter picked up and she was using my old flute. I never told her the whole story. But <laughs> since, she later on switched instruments. So I figure, well, some things are better left just. Yeah, just, you know, don't have to tell her about those uh, comedy shows. Thoroughly, we used to- thoroughly sterilized. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's funny because I, you know, I used to think of you as a stand-up physicist and I thought, what in the world would someone do as a stand-up physicist? And you've made a career out of educating young people about science. Yeah. I mean, as a total joke, I put in my yearbook something about being a stand-up astronomer. And it wasn't too far off from there because so much of you know, and this is informal science education. It wasn't, I didn't go into the classroom or anything. And this informal science education, you're, it's pretty much, you're doing a show. You're doing a show, you're performing for people, you're showing science phenomena, you're trying to keep them engaged. And, you know, it, humor is usually part of it, especially if you're natural at it. You know, like when I'm coaching people, you know, they can't just force jokes. You know, sometimes they could be totally engaging without being funny. In my case, I couldn't not, not be funny you know, working it in. And and in some ways, we're probably doing all the science demonstrations for whatever it's been, 30 years or something, kind of gave me my performance fix all those years. That's great. Now, right out of school, did you go right into uh, this kind of performative (laughs) science? No, I did not. Do you remember I broke my back senior year? I do remember. I wasn't (laughs) going to even bring up the story. But anyway. um, And in some ways... That put me on this trajectory because if I didn't break my back, I would have applied to astronomy grad schools and just done the thing because that's what was expected of me. And after I broke my back and, you know, was able to finish my senior year with basically the minimum credits to do what I needed to do and graduate. And there was no expectations for my family to 
do anything immediately. I kind of had a, a gap year before gap years were like a thing. I was helping my dad rehab a condo we owned in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And then I just heard about, you know, this, you know, museum kind of stuff. Ellen Whalen, our classmate, she was working at the Boston Museum of Science. And she's like, you'd probably like this. So I applied and I got the job up there. And that was in 1988. And I essentially haven't left the museum industry since. Wow. Wow. Well, fortuitous. I'm glad uh, Ellen made that call. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember. I mean, I remember when you broke your back. I visited you in the hospital. remember how worried your your mother was. And there you were cracking jokes even <laughs> while you were in traction. So. I know. Well, actually, it was so hard. I'll never forget Gideon Brower. He was making me laugh. And Gideon's a funny guy. But I had to tell him to stop because when I was in that situation there in the hospital, it hurt to laugh because it just jarred my whole body against my spine. But when you mentioned, I do remember telling Gideon, I'm like, just be quiet. You're making me laugh. I can't laugh. So you go from there. I remember you had a stint at the Liberty Science Museum in New Jersey. And, you know, I also have this picture of you, I think in Cleveland on one of the morning shows, like crushing a can, like a gigantic oil drum with air pressure. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah. So like, how do you think about creating demonstrations that are going to engage your audience and relay scientific information. It's really all like all owed to like the Mr. Wizard show and things like that. I mean, we kind of joke about it because, you know, especially folks have been doing it for a long time. You don't reinvent the wheel. Someone back in the thirties, whatever, was the first person to freeze a banana with liquid nitrogen. You know, you're going to keep doing it, but then you try and find creative spins on it. And sometimes you're using those phenomena to tell a different story. So you might use the same basic physical phenomena to, and maybe you're trying to teach a lesson about Newton's laws and maybe some of the same experiments that for inertia, like Newton's second law is a nice um, demonstration that shows deceleration. You basically throw a raw egg at a sheet and no matter how hard you throw the egg, it doesn't break because the sheet is basically decelerating the egg. I'm not going to get into it. But yeah, you could use that to talk about Newton's laws, like right out of the book, the first law, the second law, et cetera. Or let's do a show about sports science and how shoulder pads help. It's the same thing. Or you could talk about a bulletproof vest. Or So you could kind of use those same building blocks and spin a different story in a different way to, to tell some kind of science phenomenon. Or you could go totally off. The, like One science show I, I did at Cleveland was just when we had a Mistbusters exhibit. And I just took some random things together that were demonstrations that were kind of counterintuitive. So it sounded like you were busting a myth. And one of them was just kind of showing how statistically, this is before the Cavs won the championship. One of them was just showing statistically how Cleveland's championship drought wasn't unusual. It's just that for the amount of time it existed, it statistically won the amount of championships you'd expect. They were just all towards the beginning uh, kind of like how you flip a coin. You can't really predict how many times it's going to come up heads or tails, but it's going to be 50-50 in the long run. I'm going to tell that to the Detroit Lions. I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> any event, um, that's great. So what do you think your sweet spot is as far as the age groups you connect with with your humor? Is it kids? Is it teenagers? Is it pretty much everybody? When I think about most of the time, most of the folks, when you think about the age groups, you know, middle school is always challenging. But a lot of times it's because you're 
you know, your attitude going in, you know, everyone kind of wants to have the fourth and fifth graders where they love you no matter what you do. And those of us who have, you know, grown children, you kind of go through, it's the same thing. You kind of think about there's those teen years when it's like, oh, here we go, you know. But for me personally, I was comfortable pretty much with all ages. I mean, I was able to understand, you know, I, I would try, I mean, kind of, what am I trying to say? I don't want to sound boastful, but I would say like my strength as a science educator was that I could understand a subject matter and find a way to convey it to many different age groups, you know, whether it's adults, whether it's kids. And sometimes it would have to be in the same program where you're doing like a family program. Uh, but then sometimes you can focus if you're doing a school group or sometimes we do adult programs or things like that. So, you know, it's funny, we're having this time in our country where we're having to talk about science all the time. You've got information and misinformation. Have you ever thought about, like, how would you teach about the pandemic? Or could you boil down the statistical kind of lessons you taught about the calves and try to teach people about statistical understanding of the spread of disease? That's a challenge. I mean, when um, before I was um, director of the museum, I was at Cleveland, Great Lakes Science Center, and it was multidisciplinary. And we did have a whole gallery on biomedtech, and, and those are the topics that would come up. So even though physical science was my strength, I'd still, you know, work with some of the folks who knew the content on, like, life sciences and try and come up with ideas. In my current role as the director of the Air and Space Museum, I'm not doing programs. And even so, the kind of things we do, we're probably more a history museum than a science museum. A lot of our education programs are hands-on science. A lot of our programs on the floor are more conveying the history stories of the space program. When the pandemic started, it was right before the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. And, and we kind of talked about that because, you know, they were, you know, Apollo 13, they were still quarantining the astronauts when they came back from the moon. They had the isolation garments. So, you know, we're talking about those kind of connections with our mission. What are we talking about with Pandemic? Why do you quarantine? Well, this is what they did when they thought there were moon germs. Um, so I wasn't really tasked with trying to figure out how to tell the the whole science story, but we put our heads together to come up with ways to kind of relate quarantining and the pandemic with how it intersected with our stories in, in our museum. Okay, just so the record straight, are there moon germs? No, no, they... <laughs> They, Good. I just wouldn't think when so. You listen, we, last summer we had the four frogmen who recovered Apollo 11, and they were telling stories about their training where, you know, basically there'd be upwind and they would, you know, disinfect the, basically, if they were really moon germs, the things we've done wouldn't contain them. I mean, they're in the middle of Pacific. They opened up the capsule and they threw the garment in and closed it and they swabbed the outside with iodide or whatever. And then all the, the isolation suits that they wore that when they were done, the things that were potentially disinfected, they basically tied them up in a big ball with a weight and dropped it to the bottom of the Pacific. So it's like a Godzilla story waiting to happen if there are moon germs. <laughs> oh, yeah, you heard it here first. We're going to have, like, Dante and the moon germs. Oh, that would oh, be a great God. band. If this gets back to my board, I just, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're at Air and Space Museum now, which I assume is is not-for-profit. Yeah. And it looks like you've, you know, you've been in the sort of museum space the entire career. What's that like? I mean, thinking about how to make sure that your mission, you're true to your mission, you're keeping it fresh, but you're talking about a historical events. How do you do that? With a history museum, the one thing that we're in a situation with our history museum is that 
even though the focus is on Neil Armstrong and Ohio astronauts, our mission is talking about the story of space exploration. So that's open-ended. So we have a different challenge than, let's say, a, a presidential museum whose focus is going to be on those, you know, four or eight years or two for Gerald Ford or whatever it was, which the time frame's never going to change. But you might find new information or new interpretation of someone's esteem. You know, the Civil War, the dates of the Civil War aren't going to change, but you might find new information, new interpretation. You know, our challenge is that in addition to that, that you find with any piece of history is, okay, how do we start telling the story of commercial space travel? How do we start telling the story about Artemis? And that's the moon missions that's that's going to be flying in a, within the next couple of years. So yeah, so you, you, you know, you find ways to incorporate in programming. You realize you can't do everything. And that's, that's why you have a mission. So it helps you focus. It helps you decide what are the things that this is great, but you know what? This isn't part of our mission. There are other organizations that are better off to tell this story. That also helps you decide what kind of artifacts to collect or go after or acquire or things like that. You know, there's all tons of great stuff out there, but it's like, no, this doesn't line up and you can say no. It makes it easier to make those kind of decisions too. Do you find that the public's interest in the future of space travel is constant? Does it wax and wane? You know, what feedback do you, you get at your organization about people's perception of the future of space travel? I think it's constant in the sense that there's no shortage of awe when these incredible missions happen, like the Perseverance Lander, the Webb Telescope. When these things happen, there's a huge interest. You see it in social media. You see it with the questions people ask at the museum. You know, between those kind of milestone events, you might not hear a lot. So I think there's still, I think there's interest and people are, people like to hear about those kind of stories and they want to know what's going on. And they, especially lately, since we've been able to fly more, you know, cameras on these missions and they see, you know, the complexity of the engineering. And then after that, they see these fabulous photos from the science packages. I think people start to appreciate more of what's going on. So I was reading that there have been spaceports, at least provisionally planned for Northern Michigan. Like, is that a thing? Yeah, I'm not surprised. There, are, If you look at, you probably look at the FAA, you probably see tons of spaceports. There's the obvious ones like what Elon, Elon Musk is doing and you know, Blue Origins and you know, some other ones. But it doesn't hurt to, I mean, a lot of companies are just kind of speculative and kind of putting their, getting their permit paperwork for having a spaceport. That all goes through the FAA. There's a lot of, you know, they're starting to become a bigger market for the small sats, the cube sats. So you see, and if you have a smaller launcher, there's more places you could launch it. If it's not expendable and you're not dropping a stage onto uh, an area, then it's easier to have an inland spaceport. That's what Virgin Galactic and Blue Orange are doing. Blue Origin are doing. They're totally reusable. But when you have expendable rockets, you got to launch over the ocean if you care about people. If you don't care about people, then you're launching over populations like what China does. But that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. So when you look back at your 
you know, your college experience, what are the experiences that were the most important in connecting with people on science issues? Is it the pure science? Is it humanities? Is it your experience outside of the classroom? Probably the, the last one, because my pure science experience, although it was, it was interesting and I enjoyed it, and some classes I enjoyed you know, much more than others, it didn't really prepare me for what I had to do, because basically I kind of understood how electricity worked from a standpoint of taking an, you know, an electromagnetism class and I could do the integrations and figure out a Gaussian surface, blah, blah, blah. But no one really was interested in that. When you're talking to the general public, they want to know what happens when you turn the switch on the wall and what happens in the wires and how does a light bulb go on? And I realized I didn't know how that happened. I couldn't answer that. I could do the integrations, but I couldn't say what happened in just down to earth language. And I'm not saying that the degree didn't help, but it was kind of interesting how I learned that I was taught that, but it wasn't taught to me in a way that translated to everyday happenings, that I learned what a Hemholtz resonator was, but it wasn't until I'm, you know, doing research for a sound demonstration that I realized a Hemholtz resonator is basically what happens when you blow over the top of a beer bottle. No one told me that. And then the humanities, oh, for God's sakes, I didn't take any humanities classes, basically. I was like, <laughs> avoiding those like the plague. But yeah, it was the, out of the classroom because it was those conversations, hallway conversations with friends. It was, you kind of get, get used to, you know, to hear where different places where different people are coming from. And not everyone were science majors when I'm talking to folks in the hallway, so to speak. And so, you know, you kind of learn things that way. So if you had to take what you've learned from science education and put it in the classroom. You've had kids go through the school system. I think you have a son in college now, right? Both my kids are in college. Oh, both your kids are in college. You have two kids in college. So you've seen sort of college level education, everything up until then. Are there things that you've learned from your museum education you think that should be imported into the classroom? I think that they've been doing it, but I think more so, you know, now than like when we were growing up, the best way to learn things like science is, it sounds so cliche, but that hands-on work. When I mean hands-on, I don't mean just like reproducing an experiment that's in a, a lesson plan where you're almost following a recipe on how to do the experiment. Now, that's important for certain chemical experiments, don't get me wrong. But for certain science, hands-on science experiences, just allow the kids to just kind of mess around and figure out what happens when you you change certain parameters. Just kind of, I mean, like some really good experiences are just totally open-ended. Just, it sounds so routine where you just, oh, it's a paper airplane activity. And, you know, these kids want to know, well, show me how to make a paper airplane. No, figure it out yourself. Here's some basic ideas. And then you see some kid come up with a paper airplane design you would have never have taught someone. And it flies really well because they're kind of building on what might be not intuitive, but they're kind of building on the, the steps that you learn. And the problem is, is just sometimes there's just not enough time in the classroom. They're rushed to, to cover different topics, to tests and things like that. They have a week to do a certain unit when it would be great if they had two weeks so the kids could really explore. And then what happens if they don't have enough time, the kids will develop sort of preconceived notions that they have an incorrect understanding of the phenomena because their little theories match the observations, but they don't have the time to really test the theory to see that that's really not the correct theory. Because a lot of times you could have a theory that matches observations and, okay, this must be it. But then you don't get a chance to push it and find out, oh, that's not the case. 
So I'm sorry, I can't come up with something specific, but... What has been your favorite thing to teach? What's your favorite experiment to demonstrate? You know, I think over the years, I always like doing experiments that had to do with air pressure because they were always so counterintuitive and you couldn't see the air. So, you know, you would do things, things would stick upside down or whatever, and you're surrounded by air and there's a constant air pressure. When you find ways to cause a difference in air pressure, you could do these wild things, whether it's making, you know, beach balls go up in the air or glasses stick to your forehead or whatever. But I always like the air pressure because it's very counterintuitive. It'll get kids' attention. And, you know, even though air pressure as a concept, you don't see in a lot of, you know, standards for schools, it's still about forces and observation and, you know, and almost just about any kind of good science experiment, you could turn into a lesson on observation and air quote, scientific method and things like that. So now that you're uh, in the Midwest, do you miss the East Coast? I mean, you've been in the Midwest for quite some time. I've probably been in Ohio more than I've lived in New Jersey by now. I mean, I've been in Ohio continuously since 02. And I was in Cleveland for a couple of years in the 90s. And I was down in Florida for a couple of years. So do I, I miss it? It's, it's like yes and no. I mean, I feel like an Ohioan. You know, I just feel like, you know, just knowing the state and it really was a good transition to move to Cleveland because Cleveland's like New Jersey. The butt of jokes, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, gradually, you know, you now Wapakoneta, we got less than 9,000 people in the middle of a county that's got, you know, 45,000 people. It's very rural. And in my interview, they were like, you know, this isn't Cleveland. This is a really small town. I said, yeah, I get it. I understand it. And how do you like small time, lo- small town life? That's fine. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I used to live in you know, Jersey City and Hoboken right across the river from New York. But I mean, I was like drinking out of a fire hose for me. It was nice to have all that stuff next to me. But, you know, when I lived in Cleveland, Cleveland had all the stuff, you know, New York, but just in a much smaller scale. You know, you didn't need 24, probably more than 24, but you probably didn't need, you know, 2,400 Vietnamese restaurants. You just need two good ones. So, so, but yeah, but the transition to small town, you know, it's been three years out here. It's been fine. I mean, it, you know, still things I'm getting used to, like just about everyone knows everyone. Pretty much, I almost can't, you know, when, when I would go, when I would go out, you know, before the, <laughs> before pandemic. the pandemic, yeah. But pretty much, I couldn't go into a restaurant without realizing there's probably at least one person on my board somewhere in the restaurant. And not that I would, you know, do anything embarrassing, but it's just, you know, you just things you're always, you know, aware of when you're going out there and everything. But, uh, but no, it's the community embraces the museum. They're so proud of Neil Armstrong out here. It's really, that was one of the things that impressed me. It was a pride, but it wasn't a boastful pride. Like you go to some places where, you know, you can't get away from, we know this person's from this town or whatever. But you'd talk to someone and they would casually just kind of mention something like, yeah, Neil's mother was my Sunday school teacher. And you're like, really? <laughs> you know? But yeah, but it is really cool that it'll talk to people who still have that first hand experience with Neil because he lived out here. He was born just south of Wapakoneta in his grandparents' farmhouse. And that farmhouse is still in the family. As a matter of fact, his younger sister will come, still come out here during the summer. And I've had the pleasure of meeting her several times. And then his family moved around a bit. And when he was in grade school, he lived in St. Mary's, which is a town not too far from here in the same county. And then 
he um, moved to Wapakoneta again when he was in high school. And he was living in Wapakoneta when he got his pilot's license, which he got at 16 before his driver's license. And he went to into the Navy and Purdue from here. His parents were still living in the house downtown when he flew in his first space mission and the, the Gemini 8 mission. And then he moved his parents to a bigger house still in Wapakoneta for Apollo 11. So there are really strong connections here. And, um, and it's just so magical to talk to people who had that firsthand connection. So um, what's the next big space event you're really excited about? The next big space event. Well, on one hand, the next big space event is the 50th anniversary of the Armstrong Air and Space Museum, which is in July. So, Wow, that is exciting. It is very exciting. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of humbling to be the steward of this institution during not just the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, but also the 50th anniversary of the museum itself. But that's not what you're asking. I know that was just a shameless plug for my institution, but uh, <laughs> oh, that's okay. We allow yeah. shameless plugs here. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, it probably depends on who you talk to, but the um, launching of Artemis one mission, fine, much delayed, finally looking forward to get the, um, an uncrewed um, space launch system uh, rocket to uh, do a loop around the moon with the Orion craft. That's a first, that's a very major first step for, the United States returning to the moon. That's one of the things I'm looking at. Of course, the Webb telescope, it's in the middle of a six month commissioning period. So until, you know, I can't wait to see the first images from that telescope, which will be, it's already been an engineering, engineering phenomena. I can't wait to see the science from that. Yeah. And then um, I guess also it's a couple of years down the road, but they're working on a sample return from Mars to collect the samples that the Perseverance rover has been collecting on its mission. Wow. Sounds like a a lot going on. I mean, I've been following a little bit some of the private forays into space, but these sound more bold. I was reading that there was a, I think it's Toyota creating a a rover to go up. I don't know if it's to the moon or to Mars, but it seems like there's a lot of people trying to, the private sector trying to get up into space as well. Yeah, no, that's part of the, um, NASA's exploration of the moon is, is a public-private partnership, um, like with SpaceX getting the contract for the human lander. I don't know all the details, but I know there's a lot of commercial groups that are doing like cargo flights to the moon or some of the, um, what I call it, like site uh, reconnaissance. So kind of like with low Earth orbit, NASA's working with the private sector so that the private sector is sort of picking up the routine transportation to low Earth orbit as NASA focuses beyond that, they're also looking for that private-public partnership with the moon. Interesting. So we've gotten to the point of the podcast that I call it the lightning round, where I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions, and we'll see. First of all, the classic pizza question. Is putting mashed potatoes on a pizza a great innovation that should have been there while we were there, or is it an abomination to a basic food that is fundamental to New Haven? Dad, my father would be rolling in his grave. You do not put mashed potato on a pizza. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I got a peppy story story for you. If, All right, if you can indulge me. When like my dad, what he started making pizza after he retired, he just started cooking, you know, and he was making some awesome homemade pizza. And, you know, he'd make it for me and my friends. We'd come over and watch games and stuff like that. And I get a call out of the blue from one of my high school friends because one of his coworkers is telling him that Frank Pepe's is the best pizza in the world. And when he found out it was in New Haven, he's like, I'm going to call my friend Dante. He's going to tell me. 
And so he calls me up and he's like, yeah, she said Pepe's is the best pizza. And I'm like, it's really good. It's like my favorite in New Haven. And he's like, is it better than your dad's? And I just pause and I go, of all the pizza I've had in restaurants, this is the only one that comes close. And he's like, wow, I guess it's that good. Now, fast forward a couple years later, I get a call from him out of the blues. Like, Dante, it's Rick. I go, what? You're right. What do you mean you're right? I'm in New Haven. I just say to Pepe's, you're right. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. They just opened a Sally's right one town over from me. So it's it's mm. actually really good. It's nice to get a little bit of fix of the, uh, the old New Haven pizza, I have to say. So if you had an entrance song, oh, well, maybe, first of all, did you ever have an entrance song? To any of your, song. like, you know, like when the pitcher comes out and from the bullpen, they play the entrance song. Do you ever have yeah, an entrance actually, song, at, you know, at, know, during your science education days? There were a couple of times when I was on some of the, a, a couple, when we were in Jersey City, since we were across from New York, we were able to get on some of the talk shows. And there was a couple of times when I was on shows and they actually played music when I walked out. It was like 90s. I, I can't remember what, you know, but, uh, but it's fun. It's funny when you mention that it does like, Oh yeah. I kind of remember walking out on the John Stewart show and they played some nineties rock song or something, but. So you are on the John Stewart show. Yeah. We, it was kind of funny. Cause um, I got on the John Stewart show and also on Conan O'Brien. And in both cases, it, you know, this was like years later, I'm reading some time article about Conan O'Brien. And, and I, when I looked at the dates in the article, I realized I was on like when he was about to be canceled, but wasn't. So it's like, no wonder I was a guest. They were just like, get anyone here. And so what when did I was you on the John Stewart show, was, I think he was already known he was going to be canceled. This was before The Daily Show. So they were probably like, whatever, you know? Yeah. I'll have Dante come on and blow some stuff up. Yeah. So if their careers went any other way, it would just be like, you remember that guy in the 90s? You know, but then it's like, oh, you were on Conan O'Brien? It's like, yeah, I was on Conan O'Brien. <laughs> wow. Well, now we know who, who to blame. Oh, you can take credit, you know. Um, So uh, if you were to have an entrance song, you're going to pick any, like, rock anthem to be your entrance song, what would it be? Oh, it would be Red Barchetta. All right. All right. Yeah, definitely be something, something from that album for sure. If you look back, are there any classes at Yale that you thought were truly formative or was it just the, the time in, in the Morris dining hall or in the hallways or. I would say when you say truly formative in some strange way, when I took Westerfield, that was kind of formative because in a way it kind of prepared me to be an, an executive because I was taking it past fail. I didn't have, I didn't really feel like reading all those books every week. So I'd go to a couple lectures and then we'd have the, um, you know, the discussion groups and I, you know, see my roommates like, you know, Bob Dow, Rich Deeds. I'd be like, hey, I was supposed to read Essence of Decision this week. What's the main points? And they basically briefed me on the book. I go to the discussion session and I would just wait for an appropriate time in the session to comment on the thing I understood from what they said. And it sounded like I read the book. So in some ways, it's like it's like being an executive. You go into a meeting, someone on your staff prepares you. Okay, what do I need to know about this donor? What have they done? What's our history? Okay, great. You know, perfect, perfect. <laughs> Final question: Should we bring back the fashions of the seventies or eighties? 
That's a big 70s or 80s. Yeah, well, because we lived through both, you know? We're there yeah. for both. Like, I look at some of the pictures, and I was looking pretty good in my bell-bottom pants in 1976. But, you yeah. know, then you had the 80s. Also not bad. That's a tough – I mean, you can't do a line-item veto on this because there's Oh, yeah, some sure. Things, go ahead. There's some things which I would not want to see, but there's some other things where it's just like, yeah, that wouldn't be bad. But definitely I think we should – uh not bring back platform shoes. Or, oh, no, no, definitely yeah. not. That, but you're well, right. I can remember seeing pictures when I was maybe in fifth or fourth grade, and my mom had me in like plaid pants and wide collar, two tone shirt that looked like lost in space. Wow. Well, on that image, I think we will uh, wrap things up. Thank you so much for spending the time, Dante. It's been great catching up. Yeah, same here. It was really great talking to you. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College, be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion be there it's one yale college class dared to break the mold that's it for today thanks so much for tuning in this has been the y87 podcast the official podcast of the greatest class that yale college has ever known we hope you've enjoyed it if you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.